Um, before we get started this morning, I wanted to just take a little bit of time to, to reflect back on last week uh, for a minute. Um, I, uh, we are at Harbor Life are trying to create a place uh, where we can be authentic with each other, where we can be honest, straightforward, uh, where we can create a space that's safe for everybody as well. And last week, I need to own something that I did, um, and so I want to, I, I, last week I made a, a comment that was, that was flippant, uninformed, it was about, it had to deal with weight and fast-tracking and a drug, and it was, and it hurt some people's feelings. And so, um, I didn't mean to do that, it wasn't part of my notes, I just kind of said it, and, um, and yet the consequences are what they are. So, uh, I want to own that this morning, I want to apologize for it. Um, and I will try to do better moving forward. So I just wanted to make sure we did that and, um, and, and you could hear me in that. Um, because we, it's never our intention to make anyone feel uncomfortable or unsafe or feel shame or guilt. That's not what we're aiming at. Uh, and that's what I did. So I'm sorry for that. All right. Moving from there to um, where we're going this week. So we're gonna, actually we're going to open with double preambles. That was preamble number one. Here's preamble number two. Um, for those of you who are new to Harbor Life, um, we're a church that takes a few things seriously. Um, one, we take the Bible very seriously. Uh, we believe it's God's word shared with us. Uh, and we want to make, and so we have committed to doing the hard work to try to understand what God is communicating to us through all of the stories that we read in Scripture. Now, we understand that a few things in the Bible are pretty straightforward and easy to understand, right? There, there's so, some, some of the language is just, it's just clear and easy. But we also realize, and hopefully we've been able to see that as we work through Matthew last year and as we work through Genesis this year, that there are parts of Scripture that are incredibly complex, that, that, are, have, that have layers of meaning all mixed together, um, have all of these different things. Sorry, my, my, somebody turned on the power-saving mode of my notes here. I actually don't even know how to turn that off. Uh-oh, this could be interesting. Um, so we also recognize that there are some parts of it that are incredibly complex, and in those complexities um, is where we want to wrestle. So we, we talk a lot here at Harbor Life about how uh, the, one of the characteristics, one of the defining characteristics of God's people are that they, um, this, is, this isn't going to work, I'm really sorry. I was hoping I could just, well, I guess I'll deal with it. Um, does anybody know how to turn off power saving on an iPad? Awesome. Thanks, man. Yeah. Figure it out. I, I think I can get through the first part without my notes, so we'll go. So we, rec we recognize that there's some really com complex different things that, that we want to try to wrestle with. In, in the Old Testament, uh, in Genesis, we'll get to this story in a little bit, there's a story of a man named Jacob who meets an angel and wrestles with him all night long. In that particular story, God changes Jacob's name uh, to the name of his people for the rest of time. God changes Jacob's name to Israel. In the, old, in the ancient world, the, uh, names meant a lot more than they did now. They communicated something to people. God chose to, to name his people Israel, which, is, which means to wrestle with God. Essentially saying for, forever that one of the defining characteristics of my people are that they wrestle with me. Why do I bring that all up this morning? Because to this morning we are going to try to tackle a particularly difficult piece of scripture, one that, that a story that maybe you've heard before. Uh, it's, a, it's one, thanks, Jer. Thanks, Jer. 
<laughs> he gets donuts. Yes, there you go. Yes. <laughs> uh, you always take, it's always a risk giving Andy a mic, and he goes from there on, right? He said, some of it's so good, and some of it's so hard to come back from. So what do we do with that, right? <laughs> uh, why, are we, why are we talking about all of those things this morning? Why such a long preamble? Because like I said, we're, t- we're tackling a story uh, that bo- whether you've been in the church for a long time or not, you probably have heard about before. It's made it into pop culture spaces. Um, we have made it in our, in our journey through uh, Genesis to Genesis 19, which is the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, this is a story that carries, obviously carries a ton of baggage with it. Um, that, can, that, can, that can be a trigger even for some people just thinking about it. And so what we're going to do today is, like, is what we often do is, is respect all of those things that we talked about and try to see if we can wrestle with this story and see what God is trying to communicate to us through it. My guess is it might be different than what, than what we've traditionally thought it to be. So in order for us to start this story, what we're going to do is we're going to read a lot of scripture today. Just get ready for that. We'll be in Genesis 18 and 19. Um, but, to, but in order for us to actually set this story up, we have to remember where we've been. We've been talking about a, uh, a man named Abram. Last week we saw his name get changed to Abraham. And, and his kind of journey uh, through his covenant with God. We saw that it started by God saying to Abraham, I want you to leave where you are and go to Canaan, go to Israel, the place, or wasn't Israel yet, go to Canaan, uh, where I'm going to make you into a great nation. He says, I'm going to bless you, I'll be with you, and then out of that blessing, I want you to bless everybody else. We saw that Abraham faithfully leaves, he travels, he goes to Canaan, he gets there, um, and we saw that in that space on Easter, that God said, I've promised these things, and he, and he said, I actually will take I will commit to my promise, I'll make a covenant with you that I will make you into a great nation, I will bless you, that I will always be with you. And we also saw that Abram's side of the covenant was that then he was to live blameless before God. We also talked on Easter how God doesn't actually make Abraham make that commitment, God makes it on Abraham's behalf. He says, if you fail to live blameless before me, I will take the consequences upon myself. Last week... We saw that, that even that God had made those promises and that Abram got a little uh, anxious about it. It had been a number of years and still didn't have any children. And so we talked about the story of Hagar and how in that story, as she ran, God sees her and loves her in the midst of those spaces. We also saw that God reaffirmed his covenant with Abram in that space, bringing us to where we are now. So, if you've got a Bible, turn with me to Genesis 19. We'll, read, we'll just read the long story, and it's a strange one. I admit that. Genesis 19 says, The two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. When he saw them, he got up to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. My lords, he said, please turn aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet and spend the night and then go on your way early in the morning. No, they answered. We'll spend the night in the square. But Lot insisted so strongly that they did go with him and entered his house. He prepared a meal for them, baking bread without yeast, and they ate. Before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out so that we can have sex with them. Lot went outside to meet them and shut the door behind him. He said, No, my friends, do not do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you, and you can do what you like to them. 
But do not do anything to these men, for they have come under the protection of my roof. Get out of our way, they replied. This fellow came here as a foreigner, and now he wants to play the judge. We'll treat you worse than them. They kept bringing pressure on Lot and moved forward to break down the door. But the men inside reached out and pulled Lot back into the house and shut the door. Then they, then they struck the men who were at the door of the house, young and old, with blindness, so they could not find the door. The two men said to Lot, Do you have anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons or daughters, or anyone else in the city who belongs to you? Get them out of here, because we are going to destroy this place. The, out, uh, the outcry to the Lord against its people is so great that he has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-laws who were pledged to be married to his daughters. He said, hurry and get out of this place because the Lord is about to destroy the city. But his sons-in-laws thought he was joking. With the coming dawn, the angels urged Lot, saying, hurry, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you'll be swept away when the city is punished. When he hesitated, the men grasped his hands in the hands of his wife and two daughters and led them safely out of the city, for the Lord was merciful to them. As soon as they had brought them out, one of them said, Flee for your lives and don't look back and don't stop anywhere in the plain. Flee to the mountains or you'll be swept away. But Lot said to them, No, my lords, please. If your servant has found favor in your eyes, you have shown, or, sorry, your servant has shown favor in your eyes and you have shown great kindness to me in, in sparing my life. But I cannot flee to the mountains. This disaster will overtake me, and I will die. Look, here is a town near enough to run to, and it's, so, and it's small. Let me flee to it. It's very small, isn't it? Then my life will be spared. He said to them, Very well, I will grant you this request, too. I will not overthrow the town you speak of, but flee quickly, because I cannot do anything until you reach it. That is why the town is called Zoar. By the time Lot reached Zoar, the sun had risen over the land, and the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the, from, from the Lord out of from the Lord out of the heavens. Thus he overthrew these cities and the entire plain, destroying all, the living, all those living in the city and the vegetation in the land. But Lot's wife looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and returned to the place where he stood before the Lord. He looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah, towards the land of the plain. He saw a dense smoke rising from the land like smoke of a furnace. So when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham and brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. Simple, right? Nice and easy and light, right? What in the world do we do with all of that? Because honestly, we read that story and it sounds more like a Marvel movie than it does the Bible, doesn't it? Right? You're like ready for Thanos to come out and just snap or something like that, right? Uh, it's a weird story. Uh, it really, really is. And so what do we've, we've got angels, we've got fire falling from the sky, we've got salt. What do we do with all of those things? And so what I want to do this morning is I want to start by wrapping our heads around the basics of the story we see and then see if we can pull some parts out of it. What we have in the story is we have two visitors approaching the city of Sodom and they're told, uh, we're told that they're more than just two regular guys, they're two angels. We'll talk more about that in just a minute. But these two angels enter the city, and they're greeted by Abram's nephew, Lot. Um, he invites them into, the ho into his house and offers them hospitality. The rest of the city, though, sees these guys differently. They don't invite them in. They want to take advantage of them for their own desires. They demand Lot give the visitors to them. Lot refuses, and then we have this really strange interaction of, around his daughters, and that is a whole other thing that we should talk about and can't today. Uh, just, just because there's too many other ways to go. Uh, and and in, in, in the end, though, the, the visitors flee the city with Lot and his family, and the city is destroyed. Now, 
I grew up being taught that this story and the destruction of Sodom was because of their sexual ethic. Did anybody else learn it that way too? Right? Now, I do believe that, that what, the city, uh, the, the, what, what, this, what the city wants to do with these visitors is part of the corruption of Sodom. That is part of the story. But when we really explore the story, what we find is that sexual ethic is actually is part of a much bigger sin of the city of Sodom. That the story isn't about sexual ethic. That's a piece of it. That's not okay. That's something that, we, that, that is in there, but it's not the point of the story. In fact, Sodom and Gomorrah are addressed elsewhere in the Bible as well. Check out what Ezekiel has to say about it in Ezekiel 16, 49. Now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and the needy. They were haughty and did detestable things before me. Therefore I did away with them as you have seen. What we see in Ezekiel is that the main point of the story was was, was, not, was, was pride and arrogance. By the way, the Bible condemns pride and arrogance more than any other sin in the Bible, and it's not even close. They, they were overfed and unconcerned. In other words, they had more than enough but didn't care that others didn't and didn't care for them in that space. And then finally, they didn't help the poor and the needy. Actually, what we see in this story is instead of helping those who were in need, they actually take advantage of them. There's a lot of things messed up in Sodom. And what gets really, what gets, but what gets God really worked up, though, is that was their exploitation of the weak. We actually see it in, how, in Jesus and how he talks about Sodom as well. He does it a little bit differently than Zeke, but, but let's just read what he has to say in Luke 10. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place that he was about to go. He told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into the harvest field. Go, for I am sending you out, out like lambs among wolves. Do not take a purse or a bag or sandals, and do not greet anyone on the road. And in other words, go as someone who is poor and needy. When you enter a house, first say, peace to this house. If someone who promotes peace is there, your peace will rest on them. If not, it will return to you. Stay there eating and drinking whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. But do not move around from house to house. When you enter a town and are welcome, eat what is offered to you. Heal the sick who are there and tell them the kingdom of God has come near to you. But when you enter a town that you are not welcome, go to the streets and say, even the dust of your town we will wipe from our feet as a warning to you. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Clearly Jesus is making a connection here between the lack of hospitality, the lack of caring for the poor and the needy, and the sin of Sodom. Jesus tells his disciples to go out and proclaim the good news of the kingdom and take nothing. In other words, go as poor and needy. And if you show up in that town and they turn you away, that town is similar to Sodom. And it's not just those two examples. But for the sake of time, that's what we'll talk about today. There are other examples as well. And we're talking about what God is addressing in Sodom and Gomorrah uh, is something other than just a sexual ethic. If you had to declare the sin of Sodom, um, it, was gonna, it, was, it would be, through Scripture, the exploitation of the weak, rather than care, instead of caring for them like God had asked us to. So while we work through that, though, let's shift our focus for just a bit back to, what the, to these angels that we have in this space. 
These angels walk into a city that's not doing what God has asked them to. And apparently, they're, they're walking around visiting people, I guess, in this particular space. But how does that help us understand what's going on in this story and what we can do with it this morning? To get to that, we actually need to back up one chapter. Because the, the angel story actually starts in chapter 18. Now, I'm actually going to switch translations, so the words on the screen here are going to be from what's called an English Standard Version of the Bible. What you have in the pews here is an NIV. Um, the translations are a little different. I just think there's some parts, some nuances that are captured better in the ESV today. Um, and so the words on the screen might be different than the ones that you have in your Bibles. Um, but it says this, Genesis 18.1, And the Lord appeared to him by the oak, him is Abraham, by the oaks of uh, Mamre, and as he, sat at the door of his as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, there were men standing in front of them. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth. Pause there for just a second. What we have going on in this story is we've got Abraham sitting by a tree. Now, there's a nuance to this that's important as we read this part of the story, too. Uh, in chapter 17, which is right before chapter 18, uh, it's the end of the covenant we saw on Easter. Uh, how Abraham shows his commitment to that covenant, we're told in chapter 17, is that he practices the ritual of circumcision. So Abraham, a grown man, uh, right before the, our story here in 18, has just uh, performed circumcision on himself. So you can put yourself in his mindset here, right? He's a grown man without pain medication. Uh, he's not just sitting under the tree. Uh, he's resting, um, because, you know, that's not the easiest to move around with, I would assume. It's not something we look forward to. Why does that matter? Why do we point that out? Well, it adds a little bit of weight to what happens next. While Abraham is sitting under this tree, recovering, he looks up and he sees three men walking towards him. When he sees that, two things happen. One is he gets up. The second thing that happens is he runs to them. Now, that, that, little, that little phrase of he runs to them is actually making a point. One, we can imagine, like we just mentioned, he just had a little surgery. Um, running is probably not the thing he wants to do, you would guess, right? That's probably not a comfortable thing for him, uh, and yet he does anyway. Uh, but it's even more than that, is that in, culturally, uh, in, in Abraham's culture, uh, men didn't run. And actually, in certain parts of Israel today, that's still the case, we were told that while, we were, while I was there last summer, is that Jewish men don't run, which they clearly are onto something, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, right? See, I just justified, Micah, justified. Uh, but truthfully, they don't run, which, which is saying something in this story then. What Abraham is doing is he is, the point that's being made is that Abraham is being exceptionally hospitable. He runs to these men, even at the, at his, in, in the midst of his own pain and against his own culture, to make sure that they feel welcomed when they approach his tent. And that's just the beginning of what he's doing as well. When Abraham sees the visitors, he go, uh, all of the cultural parts, all of his pain goes out the window, and then this is what happens next. Abraham said, O oh Lord, if I, or he says to the, these, uh, these men, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under this tree. And I will bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do, do as you have said. And Abraham quickly went into the tent to Sarah and said, quick, three seahs of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the, head of, 
to, to the herd, again running, and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. He th- he took, he th- then he took curds and milk and the calf that had been prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. What we have going on here is Abraham takes these men in and made sure that they're comfortable and fed. He washes their feet, which is the first thing you do after a long journey. And then he goes all out to make sure that they feel cared for. He pulls out all the stops. He starts by telling Sarah to grab three seahs of his finest flour. So it's not the bad stuff either. This is the good stuff. Well, my guess is most of you aren't familiar with the measuring unit of a sia, right? I wouldn't. I wasn't until we got here. But three sias of flour is about 36 pounds of flour. Um, that's not a small amount, right? 36 pounds of flour makes about 60 loaves of bread. And we got three dudes, right? So imagine next time you go to a party and, and, and the person who's hosting you, when you walk in, just has 60 loaves of bread sitting there. You're going to go, whoa, all right. <laughs> Thanks, man, I guess. Um, Good work. But he clearly, clearly pulling out all the stops. He's going over, over the top to make sure that they feel welcomed and, uh, and feel like he, that he's hosting them well. But that's not it either. He's gratuitously hospitable already just with the bread, but that's not enough for Abraham. He runs again out to get a tender calf. So not only do we have bread, it's bread and steaks now. This is going to be delicious, Right? He washed it all down with curds and milk. He, creates, he, he, give, he pulls out all the stops and offers these men an exceptional meal in their space. Also, for the long haul, too, did you notice the final last detail? While he's serving them in that space, he doesn't even eat with them. He stands by them to make sure that they are cared for well. He lets them eat and then runs as a servant to them. Overwhelmingly hospitable. When we read the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, it's meant to be matched, in, matched with the story of Abraham in this space. The angels themselves, the fact that they're part of both stories, are, are, are a connection to make sure that when we read the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, we read it through the lens of Genesis 18 as well. The fact that they're in both of those spaces is we're supposed to compare the, hospi- the hospitality of Abraham to that of Sodom and Gomorrah. Are Abraham and Sarah arrogant or proud? No, they're not. They run to make sure that these men seem welcome. Are they overfed and unconcerned? No, they have, and so they give. Are they caring for these men who would be considered poor and needy as they were traveling? Of course they are, and not only a little bit over the top in that way. What we see in these two stories is that Abraham and Sarah's reaction to these men is in direct contrast to what Sodom and Gomorrah does. We're supposed to link those two stories because it's in that comparison we're able to learn what God is trying to teach us through both stories. In one story, we have radical hospitality. In the other, we have radical selfishness. In one story, is about what we, can do for, uh, what we can do for another person. The other is about what we can take from another person. One story is about making sure the stranger is cared for. The other is about disregarding them and abusing them for the sake of our own desires. One is trying to show us what, it, what, it, what it's like to function within the kingdom of God. And the other well, shows us something very differently when we chase other ways. Jesus actually calls back to this comparison when he's talking about the kingdom of heaven. If you look at Matthew 13, Jesus says this, he told them another parable. 
The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. So what we have in this short little parable is we have how much flour? We have three measures in Greek. But if you were to say that same thing in Hebrew, you would say three seahs of flour, clearly tying us back to this story in Genesis. And if you have any... If you have a Bible that does those comparisons, you'll have a little letter by this that'll push you right back to this story as well. You see, Genesis 18 and 19 are teaching us some very important lessons, but we unfortunately often miss them because we've made these stories about other things. When Jesus points back to this story, he says the kingdom of heaven looks like Abraham. The alternative looks like Sodom. Now, I've been really nervous, and some of you know that because I asked you to pray for us in the midst of this, about how to teach this particular lesson this week. How do I teach this story? Because I don't know if you've noticed, but we're living in a time where people can get worked up pretty easily. I don't know if you've experienced any of that or not. And stories like this can easily be a launch pad into those places. Like we've already mentioned, this story has traditionally been used as one that teaches a sexual ethic. But I hope you've been able to see that even though that is one aspect of this story, based on the rest of Scripture, it's not the point the story's trying to make. Now, don't get me wrong, and I want to say this and be really clear about it. We absolutely need to talk about sexual ethics. It's an incredibly important thing to talk about in our space here, and I mean that gay, straight, or otherwise. They're actually, they're, we have a common ground coming up soon. It's not going to be on sexual ethics, but we, in the future, we definitely will have one that will be. It's something we need to wrestle with. But what struck me this week, however, was how easily we've elevated a minor point in this story to become the point of the story, while in the process downplaying the actual things that God is trying to communicate here. See, the point of this story is the results of arrogance, selfishness, and exploitation to the poor are awful. The point of the story is that those things are in direct conflict with the kingdom of God. Sexual ethic is important to talk about, not denying that at all, but it's not the thing that brings down burning sulfur from heaven. It's arrogance. And the anger of God on that one is not a one-off. Last year, we worked through the story, we worked, we worked through the book of Matthew. And in the book of Matthew, we got to a story in which Jesus walks into the temple, sees what's going on there, and his anger burns, and he starts flipping tables. Remember that one? Do you remember why Jesus was so angry? In that particular story, in the court of the Gentiles, which is an outer court of the temple, a court that's supposed to be for the poor and the needy, Those who were running the temple had set up a market to exploit those people. To charge a temple tax, overcharge for sacrifices, all of those things inside the court that was built for the poor and the needy, for the Gentiles. That's the thing that takes the normally mild-mannered, gentle Jesus and and, and makes him lose his cool, right? The exploitation of the weak is where Jesus' anger burns in the midst of that temple. Very similar to what we see here in this story of Sodom and Gomorrah. I mentioned it earlier. There's one sin in the Bible that's talked about disproportionately more than others, and it's pride or arrogance. Or in other words, the root of our desire to be the gods of our own lives. 
We actually see it in 1 Peter 5, 5 as well. In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. All of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Now that line at the end there, God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble, is actually quoting Proverbs 5. I'm sorry, Proverbs 3, 34. But don't take, don't take that, can we throw that back up actually, that last, that last one from Peter? God opposes the pride and shows favor to the humble. That's easy to read over quickly, but do you see what's actually happening in the midst of that? What that declaration is saying is that God actively works against those who are proud. That is not a small statement, not even in the slightest. What makes God angry? What makes God move against us? There's nothing in the Bible that gets God more worked up than pride. See, if we Christians have a battle to fight in this current culture, maybe we're focused on the wrong target. If we're committed to deep discipleship, to making our lives more like Jesus, maybe our ability to diminish sins like pride for the sake of those that are currently hot topics is a problem. Maybe it's getting in the way of actually transforming our lives to look more like Jesus's. And I know that's tough. That may be stirring a lot of things in you. I get that it does for me as well. If you're feeling yourself getting frustrated or angry, I'd love to have a conversation with you about it. I thought about pulling, pulling a punch and lightening that blow a little bit, and I didn't feel good about it. So hopefully I didn't mess up. We'll see. We get so worked up about certain things, and yet we can completely underplay or diminish the one that God gets the most worked up about. But I want to close today by, ex by exploring why God might be so forcefully opposed to pride. We talk about it here a lot at Harbor Life. In, in Christ, you've been washed white as snow. You're, right, you're in right standing with God. And so when we talk about sin, what we talk about is we don't talk about sin like don't do bad things so that you, that can, you can ha, uh, be good in God's eyes. We know that comes through Jesus. We talk about sin because we realize that missing the mark of the way that God asks us to live causes us harm. So then, why does God work against the proud? Why does it make him so angry? Well, it comes to the place of asking ourselves the question, what does pride do? See, pride and arrogance forces me to tell myself a story. One that says, I matter more than someone else does. My opinions matter more than someone else does. My needs matter more than someone else does. In other words, what we're saying to ourselves in pride is that I am more valuable than someone else. And that's got something that God won't tolerate. It's not good for us. It's not good for the communities we find ourselves in. That declaration, that story we can tell ourselves, has implications that run deep. The lie that we tell ourselves that I am more valuable than someone else is the root of all exploitation in every kind. If we believed that we were all valuable, we wouldn't have the capacity to exploit one another. But if we can convince ourselves that I am valuable and they are not, We've seen how that plays itself out through history. Structures like slavery come out of that space. These people are less than. 
these people. Exploitation of every kind comes out of that story. It's the root cause as well of what the Bible describes as the hardening of your heart. If I know more than everyone else does, if I'm more valuable than everyone else does, if my opinions are more valuable than everyone, else is, everyone else's are, I have no ears to hear anything different. My heart is hardened and I can't shift. I can also get to a place where I can be so hardened that I don't even hear God's adjustments in my life. I am the God of my own life and I don't want to hear anything else from anyone else. Pride is the root cause of what the Bible describes as hardening our hearts. Pride pushes us into a place where we take on what is God's. Like we already mentioned, it's the root cause of our desire to be like God. Clearly, I could do what he does and probably better, we begin to think. When it comes to pride, some of, the, some of the, I think, the most powerful and impactful words that I've ever read on it come out of this book here. It's one of my favorite authors, C.S. Lewis. Maybe you've heard him before. He dedicates an entire chapter to what he calls the great sin. And it's all on pride. I just want to read you a couple passages out of there, that particular uh, section of that book because I think they're immensely powerful. He says it this way. He says, There's one vice of which no man in the world is free which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else, and which for hardly any people except Christians, now he's speaking about what Christians teach, not necessarily how we practice, unfortunately, of which hardly any people except Christians ever imagine that they're guilty of themselves. There is no fault which makes a man more unpopular and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. I am talking, the vice I am talking of is pride or self-conceit. And the virtue opposite to it in the Christian morals is called humility. According to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all of that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. And this is a powerful line. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. And then later on, he closes it this way. And I think this is incredibly powerful as well. As long as you are pride, proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on a thing and a people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. Whew. This year, we've committed to a discipleship journey. In so many different places in Scripture, when they point to Jesus, they point to Jesus in humility. There's a passage in Philippians that said, Jesus, in every way, be like Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God to be something to be grasped, but instead humbled himself. The first thing that Paul decides to talk about Jesus when he talks about what it looks like to be like him is that we give up what we think we're owed we give up what we think we deserve for the sake of other. There'll be a day and a time where we can talk about sexual ethic. That's true. But, I do, I, but when we move into this story, I don't want us to miss that, the, that what, what, burns the ang, what, what brings the burning anger of God is not sexual ethic, but instead pride. 
It's one I think that we all know is a problem and yet don't give the time that it needs to deal with it in the way that God does. What would it look like if our churches humbly cared for each other, where we thought about others more than we think about ourselves? Something we say we're driving towards and yet something that we struggle to do. What if we actually took our pride seriously and in places we thought we were right or had deserved or, or deserve certain things, we let it go, not considering that equality with the thing we're right about to be grasped, but let it go and become like Jesus. The first step in all of our walks with Jesus is to realize we are not God, that we are not the gods of our own lives, that we are not more valuable than anyone else, and that we sh- yet we, we wrestle together with how to walk towards being better towards one another. If we don't do that... We can't do anything else. As C.S. Lewis says, as the scriptures often said, pride is the root of every other vice. The desire to control and be the gods of our own lives drives every other sin that we have. And yet we tend to downplay it relative to other things. I'm not sure exactly where to go with that this morning. And what like to say, because each of our pride spaces is a little bit different. I suppose it's just bringing ourselves to a place where we can ask God, hey God, where have I set myself up to be the God of my own life? Where am I proud? Where have I hardened my heart or closed my ears or not been able to see because I've told myself a story that I matter more than anyone else does? I challenge you to do that this week and see where that goes, where God takes you. What if it's scary to let that guard down and yet, like we said, is the first step to actually making our lives look more like Jesus. Will you pray with me? Father God, we realize in so many different spaces in our lives, we've made other things bigger deals, but where your heart burns in frustration with us is in the places in which we've shut you out because we think we know better. Or in the places where we've taken advantage of other people because we see we, in some subtle way here, one way or another, think we're better than someone else or, or something's beneath us or someone's beneath us. God, we pray that, that we, don't, uh, we, don't, we don't play out the, the final line of, of what C.S. Lewis was saying in Mere Christianity where we have our eyes, eyes looking down on people or things so that we miss you entirely. May we, like Jesus, being in the very nature of God, humble ourselves. Let go what we think we deserve, that we think that we're in the places we think we're better than, and humbly allow you to guide us into something greater. Pray all of these things in your name. Amen.